Welcome to our podcast on emerging markets. Uh, I'm Andy Murray, the Executive Director of the Major Projects Association. I'm joined by uh, our chair and three of, uh, sorry, two of our panellists from, from our seminar uh, last month. And just a quick summary, the seminar was exploring some of the emerging markets that sort of underpin the UK's net zero energy transition. Uh, and we we're looking at both the risks and opportunities. Uh, and we put a spotlight on three aspects of that. So one was around the role of new nuclear. Um, we did a spotlight on hydrogen and we also did a spotlight on international interconnectors and generation uh, generator projects. Um, as I said, we're joined by our chair and uh, two of our speakers from that session. So um, uh, please welcome uh, Stephen Beatty, the Global Head of Infrastructure and Head of Global Cities Centre of Excellence for KPMG International. Welcome, Stephen. Hello, it's good to be here. Great, and thank you for joining us again. And we've got uh, Dr. Zainep uh, Kerbin, Technical Director of Future Energy at GHT. Welcome, Zainep. Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And Sam Mercer, Senior Program and Commercial Manager for HVDC Transmission at Xlinks. I was going to say afternoon, but it could be morning or evening. Hey there. <laughs> yeah. Depending on the time of day when people listen to this uh, podcast. So. Absolutely. So we also had to kick us off, uh, apart from uh, Stephen's excellent introduction, gave that sort of macro view of, uh, of, of sort of different geographies and different technologies that was influencing emerging markets. We also had a short talk from uh, the National Infrastructure Commission uh, in sort of reflecting on some findings from their second national infrastructure assessment, where they're taking that long term view. And uh, one of the things that came from that was uh, not necessarily the changing balance between perhaps whether it's transport or telecoms or uh, uh, you know um, energy uh, infrastructure, but actually it was the need for adaptability in terms of responding to changes, for example, the pandemic and uh, and, and other sort of uh, socio-economic uh, trends that uh, will dictate different types of infrastructure and the different ways in which it's used. So that was a fascinating sort of introduction. And then we had our two spotlights. One of the, the other sectors we looked at was around international interconnectors and generator projects. And uh, we had Sam Mercer from uh, the X-Links uh, project. So Sam, can you just give us a bit of um, background to the project? Because it's quite audacious, really, in what you're trying to achieve. So just give us some some uh, a headline and some of the facts and figures for your projects. I think everyone will find it really fascinating. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Andy. So, yeah, uh, exciting is the word I would use, but on a not just a major, but a mega scale. So interconnectors are typically direct current cables that run under the sea to connect one transmission system, one electricity transmission system to another and are able to send power uh, it, it, in either direction, the DC allows you to send it in either direction. For us, on our Morocco UK power project um, that X-Links is currently developing, it's really a one-way system to harness the solar and the wind that will generate in an enormous uh, generation park in in Morocco, in the south of Morocco, and send it through two pairs, so a total of four cables over a 3,800 kilometer route into Devon, into Aberdiscot, and they power up um, 3.6 gigawatts, which r really equates to about um, 
So, well, we're, we're, we're expecting about 7 million homes or 8% of the national requirement for, 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 for the UK. So uh, a project, again, on a really mega scale with solar, wind and battery power to help level level off obviously fluctuations day and night and uh, with, when the wind powers on and powers off, but a direct current um, transmission system to bring all of that lovely clean energy into the UK and help balance out um, balance out the demands that we have here. So um, yeah, exciting is the word. Yeah, and one of the things that I was fascinated by it is, um, well, apart from some of the figures you gave there, um, around sort of eight percent of uh, sort of UK's uh, energy needs. So that's comparable to to, to Hinkley. Um, and uh, you know, so you know, when some when a scheme comes on like this, and that's that influences you know other projects which may or may not go ahead in terms of providing the you know the the, the energy uh, that the UK requires. But it's one of the things you mentioned in your talk though is around that sort of. Near, nearly 4,000 uh, kilometres of, of cable that needs to be laid. That's a lot of cable, um, not just in terms of the manufacture, but also of the of the cable laying. Uh, and that's a that's a new market in itself, isn't it? In terms of the yeah. the, the, the you know the fleets that, that's needed to do that and the capacity to generate the cable that you need. Yeah, I mean, I think the emerging market banner fits in multiple ways so you know long distance interconnectors are this is will be one of the first the um the longest one so far is about 720 route kilometers connecting norway to um umbria uh, there's another one in in progress uh across to denmark but there you know this is four times the length so as an emerging market an ultra long distance or a super long distance clearly there's um interconnectors on overhead lines across China, across India, so, you know, across Africa, those are long mega projects in themselves, but on overhead lines rather than cables. So, yeah, subsea cables, ultra long distance in the emerging market. And with that comes, as you rightly acknowledge, you've got to make the cable and then you have to put the cable on the seabed with um, a fleet of vessels, uh, which includes burying the cable and protecting it as well. So, um, yeah capacity and growth for factory um, vessels, uh, protection, all of the engineering support that goes with it, all the people. Yes, yeah, definitely a growth market, an emerging market. And X-Links as an organisation, is that something that you're, you know, you're developing that capability yourself or you're working with, with the market and supply chain? Are you sort of seeding that capability elsewhere? How 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 do you anticipate that capability or that capacity uh, coming on stream? So um, X-Links, uh, it's a bit of a mix of, if I'm honest, because clearly you need to bring experience on whilst you develop uh, in the experience, as it were. But um, we, we've got a bit of a varied team uh, in terms of that capability or knowledge or experience but we're supplemented currently in the development phase by you know a whole bunch of consultants that are expert advisors and um, you know the, the, as you'd expect on a, a scheme of this nature some very specialist uh, topics and um, some very um, detailed technical advice that we need to make sure that the whole thing works and the the, the interconnect of the generation park everything sits together and um, sends power seamlessly so it's it's a mix of honest and and then as you obviously move forward to the construction phase again 
there's a, there's a huge supply chain that will be involved. Typically, you know, you understand all the civils, construction, building roads and overhead lines and uh, cables and convert stations and the like. But there's all that engineering and, and knowledge and, uh, you know, the, the content in Morocco is a really exciting part of the project as well. So, yeah, the development in of, uh, yeah, I guess markets in multiple senses. Yeah, and the other thing that I found fascinating is the, you know, because it's a, a new type of, um, you know, interconnector with the, the generation uh, linked to it, that sort of the regulator in terms of um, it isn't quite, or the regulations aren't quite in place yet. So it's not just emerging in terms of that uh, capability capacity to deliver it, but also to, you know, to, to create that market for the demand well, side mean, of it as well. It's a, it's a sort of a yes and a no. I mean, um the regulation and the mechanisms that we're seeking support for from the government exist. You know, the contract for difference is a well-trodden path, but um, yeah, it's something that we need to to give confidence and certainty to, you know, investors and other stakeholders and the supply chain itself. I mean, it's all a bit of a virtuous circle, if I'm honest. You know, you've put certainty at the centre. There's a there's a there's a triangle of interaction between managing risk and managing supply chain and managing um, external stakeholders all, all all comes together. So um, I think the regulation is needs perhaps a little bit of work, but ultimately we know that there's a mechanism there that will support us. We just need to make sure that everyone agrees it's the right thing to do, and, mm-hmm. and that clearly we believe it's the right thing to do um, to bring clean energy through to the UK. Brilliant. So, Stephen, I wonder if you've got some reflections on what you learned on the day from the X-Links program. From my perspective, it's interesting because this is a project that deals with lots of technology, lots of supply chain. But to me, perhaps the biggest challenge and the biggest potential constraining factor in any of these new markets is the human factor. And how do we make sure we have enough people trained up to do all the relevant bits in the right order? And the human factors, I think. It's something that I, I'm not sure I appreciated well enough earlier in my career, but certainly now it really seems to be something that we've got to be spending spending more time and more cycles of brain power on. It seems to be, um, uh, back to the virtuous circle, uh, the virtuous circle needs to actually be fully squared so that we can we can do it. And I I think that's, that's going to remain a a continuing challenge both for project sponsor as well as the firms doing the actual work as well as government and the public sector to make sure that the right if you will human capital raw materials are ready willing and able to act and perform when they are called on yes yeah, so sam in terms of we, we've been focusing on the on the cable the interconnector part but obviously in morocco those human factors uh, include a workforce that's going to be required to um, to operate, you know, the facilities once they're once they're developed. Um, so it's creating a you know a, a new workforce, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, part part of the 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 beauty of the project is it, it will create a lot of jobs, but you need the people to fill fulfil them. I totally echo what Stephen's saying, really. So, um, yeah, uh, actually, in the operational phase, not. Uh, relatively smaller team to to manage the operations, but um, yeah, construction-wise, there's, there's a lot of lot of roles to fill. So I, I agree, the human factor and getting the right 
experience and capability and at the same time bringing on new new learning and new knowledge and um yeah or, or, <laughs> you're just saying it's another emerging market isn't it so how, how do you grow those can i jump in just on one one more question how how much at, at full throttle how much of the world's supply of cable laying equipment call those i'll, I'll let me let's focus on ships how, how much of the world's um, ship cable laying ship capacity are you going to be occupying? And how, man, how many ships does that mean we have to build in order for everything else that's contemplated to get done? Clearly, if this is an emerging market and you know we believe that we need to build our own vessels and um, push forward in that in that respect, um, the demand for other vessels for other projects that's um, that's out there as well. So. I, I, if I'm honest, I'm not sure about the total future growth prediction, but it'd be interesting to see what uh, what, what, what those demands do do require. Sorry, that's a bit of a flaky answer. You might edit that. I, I, I think it's a perfectly honest answer, and I think that's a, that's exactly one of the challenges because some of these some of the, the the lead times not only on the people but the lead times on the physical assets are really quite substantial, and we've really got to make sure we give it enough time and we give it enough consideration how early we need to begin some of these things. Yeah, and it's not in isolation. So, as, you know, as other schemes come on board, you know, you, you've got competing demands for, for those facilities elsewhere. So, Susanna, I think you want to come in on this this point or, or this last question. Uh, the previous question, actually. So, I think the point that Stephen is raising on this human capital um, and resourcing issue is a really um, important one. and I think given that our um, energy economy is currently built on fossil fuels, there's a major role for the fossil fuel industry to play in kind of transitioning um, the, 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 the roles within the sector to, uh, f to you know, new technologies and future energy, especially hydrogen, given that there are quite a few similarities in the way um, hydrogen gas or liquefied hydrogen can be um, transported in a similar fashion to um, natural gas and LNG, um, but unfortunately, the, the 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 work being done by the fossil fuel sector is um, not enough, uh, to say the least. Um, their investments um, are less than five percent um, of their revenue in, in, in renewables. So, I think that's a sector that could play a major role and needs to do more than it's been doing or planning to do in fact. And it's a fantastic segue Zainab, to, um, to the spotlight on hydrogen. Um, so um, you gave us a, an overview of, of the market and, and I was you know, blown away by the, the scale of it. So perhaps for those who were unable to, to attend the seminar, could you just um, give us a recap as to you know, what, what, what is going on in the world of hydrogen at the moment? Yes, sure. It's worth noting that um, this decade is probably the decade um, for the emergence of a hydrogen economy, given that there has been several hype cycles in the past. Um, and I'd say we are entering um, a more uh, the, the, the phase of realism um, and hopefully more projects will be built on the ground um, to make this happen. And um, in terms of the projects, there are currently about 1,000 projects 
that have been announced around the world uh, with um, investments amounting to about 320 billion um, US dollars. Um, and all of these projects, about 75% um, need to be built by 2030. Um, a lot of this investment is um, in um, the EU, uh, about 35% and about 15% from America and another 15% from um, um, Asia-Pacific region. Um, however, it's no worth noting that only 10% of these projects have reached final investment decisions. So we have a long way to go still. Um, uh, some of the, the kind of major barriers to unlocking that investment um, is uh, policy certainty uh, in, in most regions, um, especially in terms of unlocking uh, private sector investment. Um, a lot of these investors are looking to better understand um, the, the, the kind of revenue streams that could be enabled for hydrogen going forward, given that there isn't um, demand yet uh, material in many of these countries. So, I mean, I would say, you know, hydrogen, the reason it's taken so long to get here is because it's such a complex um, area to tackle, given that there are there isn't an existing infrastructure as there is for the electricity um, transmission and distribution systems. So it's, it's that chicken and egg problem that has hampered progress for so many years. Um, you know the infrastructure investments investments are major, and as a result, you know that that's without that being there, um, a lot of the off takers are not changing their processes because they want to make sure they have security of supply of hydrogen at low enough cost. Um, and yeah, the 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 question some of these. Um, companies are also looking at, and in fact, countries is also where, where the hydrogen will come from. Um, Europe is positioned to um, focus on green hydrogen production from renewables, um, given that they they just want to move away from um, fossil fuels. Essentially, that's that's their main reason. Um, but um, most of the world is really looking at um, different options for obtaining hydrogen, including from natural gas combined with CCS. Um, and yeah, and there, there's a bit of uncertainty in some of the countries on the prospects for CCUS as well. So um, in the UK, however, there's been a lot of support, um, 20 billion um, pounds announced for developing CCUS clusters. Uh, which would help hydrogen, um, but I just wish there was as much funding, at least half, <laughs> um, you know, would be absolutely amazing for the hydrogen sector um, because the UK is really falling behind in terms of both government and private sector investments in this space. One of the things that sort of struck me, you talked about that, you know, um, you know, thousand projects have been announced, 75% by 2030, you know, 10%. Um, reaching that investment decision. So that means there's something like 650 um, projects globally that are going to be delivered in the next seven years. That's a massive ramping up, you know, particularly, as you say, we come off the end of that hype cycle into, into a delivery cycle. Um, so, you know, I think from a, an impact, uh, a market impact for us is, you know, we, we've heard from um, Sam in terms of the, um, the, the, the scaling up on the 
on the cable side, you know, cable laying side of things, there's going to be an equivalent, isn't there, in the in the in, you know for the hydrogen uh, market as it matures. I've got a question for you though. You, you said about the the UK falling behind, um, and in your talk you mentioned that um, the sort of hydrogen capacity in the US is growing one and a half times faster, or sorry, North America than than the rest of the world. Why is that? What, what's enabled that in, in the US or in North America, rather? On the first note, before I answer that question, um, it's worth noting when the renewable uh, sector was de- being developed, um, I say being developed, it's still being developed. However, in terms of the, the investments before the costs were really uh, lowered, I think only about 20% of the projects that were actually developed, uh, planned for, went ahead. So, it's worth noting that yeah. not all of these projects will get FID and it's really going to d- depend on um, and, and there's a ma- major competition to make them happen. Um, and that includes resources going back to the previous point. So in terms of the UK, I, sh- I should be careful when I say falling behind. We are not yet. However, there, there is this possibility that we could. The UK has a very strong supply chain base to develop the hydrogen sector. Uh, we have one of the biggest electrolyzer manufacturing companies um, and and very strong um, innovation space, R&D space that enabled this to happen um, in terms of the, the commercialization of the technologies. And so we have that know-how and we, we've, we've got that momentum and so many projects, up to 20 gigawatts of projects, twice that by 20, but planned by 2030, which is double the the, tar- the government's target for hydrogen production. But we, we are at this risk of falling behind, given that we have very little government funding and also somewhat policy uncertainty, which some other countries are doing better in terms of kind of enabling that policy certainty and incentive. The Inflation Reduction Act in, in the US has been quite critical in terms of providing um, revenue support and tax credits in addition to that to drive the sector and in fact a lot of the a lot of GHD's clients and the people uh, who are looking at developing hydrogen projects are expressing interest in doing them in the US because of these incentives and so this will then drive a push um, in resources and skills to the US because there is a global competition, as Stephen pointed out, and we could then fall behind. Great, thanks, Hannah. Stephen, do you want to add your thoughts? My biggest issue here is we're, we're still struggling with this lack of understanding just how close 2030 is. And, and we're in that stage, and it's interesting because I'm watching the US go through this and and that they're they're still searching for perfection and perfection has become the enemy of progress and and as we do this the, again plans when when you're doing a plan the plans always come true and and the trick is um it's just over 6 years to 2030 some of the development schedules will will really begin to bite and our ability to achieve what is possible on paper will be harder when it comes to actually putting boots on the ground, technology in, 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 in the ground. And I think that's going to be one of the, one of the big challenges. I'm not sure it's actually struck home yet 
just how close 2030 is and how much needs to be done. Um, the time for action is now. The time for action is not two years from now. The time for action is now. That's at the human capital stage. It's at the technology stage. It's at the finance stage. And remember, the lenders in these projects develop very short arms and very deep pockets when they have that policy uncertainty. And I think, again, I would call strongly on governments, and we're seeing the implication of that with the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., where that does cause the capital, cause projects, cause technology to flow to a jurisdiction. So I think there's some there's some real uncertainty here, and I think um, I, I just hope the sense of urgency is making it all the way to the decision makers. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah, we can see that sort of um, you know, the, the, the international aspect uh, affecting here in terms of acts or policies in, in one jurisdiction, you know, um, creating or moving demand and therefore attracting supply and uh, and how that sort of affects our, our markets. And we've seen this in other aspects of, of major projects, certainly the increase in capital projects in, in Saudi Arabia, for example, we know that there's been a draw of our uh, design engineers and so on, you know, moving to to work on projects there, uh, you know, affecting their availability for for projects in the UK. So, um, yes, interesting interesting times, and we're seeing the, uh, the the competition for the investments and the the human capital, as you're saying, uh, by by different nations. Um, Stephen, I wonder if um, if I could sort of come back to you uh, again. Terms of you chaired our, our event on, on emerging markets. We, we looked at three, you know, just spotlight on three uh, in, in uh, those relating to the energy transition. Just uh, again, for the benefit of those who who didn't attend the seminar, just thought if you could give your thoughts in terms of, you know, what what is the outlook from, you know, from a major project in terms of opportunities and those threats in terms of emerging markets going forward? I think our I think our ambition is great. Our ability to deliver is um, not without its challenges, whether that be at the human factors level, whether that be at the supply chain level, whether that, and when I say supply chain, I'll go so far as to say the lenders on projects. Um, I think the real challenge for all of us is this need for this sense of urgency. And... Mm-hmm. It's hard to translate that into boots on the ground, but we have to do it. Um, Just try and hire an urban planner today. Um, That urban planner's probably got five job offers from five different places in the world, all of whom could be a good 10-year portion of someone's career. So I think the competition for resources is massive. I think failing failing to acknowledge that maybe the Achilles heel of many programs and everyone is going one of the things that that, that I, and I'll take the inflation reduction act um, as an example the ch- the challenges that in America for the longest time nobody gets it nobody gets it nobody gets it nobody gets it and then all of a sudden everybody gets it at the same time and it goes from zero to art form, to craft, to mass production in a matter of almost weeks. And when that happens, watch out. Um, I think the global markets, um, for the last, call it, dozen years, the greatest investment you could make was would be to buy 
on a private equity basis, another company that already exists that didn't have access to capital or didn't have access to a transition uh, of ownership from one generation to another. That, that phenomenon, while it will continue to exist, will, will need to confront climate and in particular investments in new technologies. There are new uncertainties, different things that we need to be aware of. But I think if we proceed down this road, we're going to need to spend quite a lot of time in investing in the financiers and helping them come to terms just as they came to terms with generational issues and access to capital issues in the past decade, they're going to need to, to come to that if we are going to be able to achieve what we hope to achieve with respect to global warming. Interestingly, some of the largest private equity entities in the world have acknowledged this. And the challenge is how do we create the expertise both in the investor and in the developer implementer at the same time. The, the great challenge to me is making sure we get our regulatory system well enough advanced so that we can give that policy certainty to everyone. And I think if we do that, 2030 is a reasonable goal. Um, are people openly talking about not making 2030? Absolutely. Are people really talking about 2050? I think they are. Um, it's a little scary. It's a, it, 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 I, don't, I don't want to accept defeat because I don't think defeat is assured, but I do think we really need to get started if we're to make a meaningful dent in the commitments that everyone has made to 2030. So optimistic, absolutely. Is the demand there? Absolutely. Will we really have to move forward human factors, supply chain, access to capital? Absolutely. Real challenges and none of them is an easy solve. Yeah, so we need a lot more projects of the like that we heard uh, on our seminar. So um, I'm going to have a last chance then for Sam and Zainab to make a pitch for um, if we get that uh, regulatory and, and policy um, certainty, you know, why why should the, the best investment and the, the best human capital and uh, organisations be attracted to work in the international interconnectors and generators, uh, Sam? Well, I mean, yeah, I use the word exciting and I use the word clean, you know, clean energy and, uh, you know, it is really transformational. So uh, quite, as you said, um, what was your word, an aspirational company, um, really kind of leading the charge and just, just a great, exciting place to be. So, yeah, that would be my pitch, all of those four words. Great. Thanks, Sam and Zainab. Same question to you. Yeah, I think clean energy is moving fast, uh, but unfortunately not fast enough, especially if we're going to meet our net zero targets. We're not going to meet our target to stay within the 1.5 degrees heating limit. Unfortunately, that's how it seems. But the faster we can act to minimise the damage, uh, the better. And policymakers really need to internalise this and take the necessary action. Thanks, Sainab. And uh, um, in terms of uh, um, time, taking time to action, we're out of time. So uh, I'd just like to thank Stephen, Zainab and Sam for joining us for this uh, podcast and providing us some additional insights and some extra uh, detail on, uh, on the information you share with us at the seminar. So thank you very much. And thank you for everyone listening to this podcast and see you again on the next one.